From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox president Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF. When you think of Los Angeles, a few things pop to mind. Hollywood, the beach, and the L.A. Lakers. Lakers franchise is one of the most storied in all of sports, with the stars of the team, Magic, Kareem, Shaq, Kobe, and these days LeBron, using the glitz, glamour, and a lot of championship rings to transcend sports. And that's by a design largely conceived by one man, Dr. Jerry Buss. Max Bornstein is the co-creator, showrunner, writer, executive producer of Winning Time. It's an HBO series about how the bus-led Lakers rose from the verge of bankruptcy to become one of the most valuable franchises in all of sports. As season two of the show premieres, I caught up with Max to talk about all things Lakers and how he brought 1980s LA and the massively influential team to life, warts and all. I'm Jason Kelly. This is a special edition of Bloomberg Business of Sports. All right, so Max Bornstein, I, I've got to read this. Co-creator, showrunner, writer, executive producer of Winning Time Season 2. It's out. I can't get enough of this show. I was saying to you before we started talking, it's just a world I love living in. And so I, I want to hear how you created it, how you came to it. I know a little bit of the backstory, but tell me how you came to this project. I'm, it, I'm so glad to hear that, Jason, and, and, and thanks for having me on. And it's, it, it, for me, it is a world that I love living in, too. And that's really the reason why I gravitated towards it. You know, I read, I read the book Showtime that Jeff Perlman wrote and that uh, Jim Hecht, my co-creator, right. had optioned and been, for years had this vision of making it a television show. Uh, he'd grown up in L.A. and he was looking for someone who was a basketball fan who'd grown up in L.A. to write it and, and help bring it to life. And... You know, I've always been searching for something that would feel like it would hit the spot of resuscitating that that world that I vaguely remember as a young child kind of glimpsing and looking up to and seeing all. And, and it's a lost. It, it's as lost, I think, now as the Depression era, the world of, of people with their shirts open and smoking in restaurants. And, you know, when basketball was young and hadn't yet exploded on the scene and all of these these aspects that I you know I knew some of the history uh and in reading Jeff's book I realized that it was such a perfect kind of prism onto that moment in time that change that the 80s wrought that I think is the world we live in today where sports and entertainment are the same where they're global where American culture is that globalized kind of all started in this moment and we're able to tell that story through the lens of Lakers basketball, which, you know, for me as an L.A. kid, hits close to home. 
Well, and it's amazing too, you know, we, we talk so much around the, the stuff that we do about this intersection of business, sports, and, and culture. And clearly this was a cultural moment. It's also such a fascinating business story because looking at the NBA today, it is very hard to imagine until candidly you watch your show, this was a failing business. The NBA was the fourth or fifth tier of sports in America at the time. You had, you know, baseball, football, golf had far higher ratings than basketball. And, the, and both, you know, CBS was constantly preempting basketball and, and lowering the contract every year uh, because they wanted the wealthy clientele of golf because the advertisers thought that was a more uh, exciting sport. And uh, to me, Jerry Buss... Uh, is the most exciting kind of fulcrum point in sports as this character. And, and relatively, I mean, he's famous, obviously, but I think he hasn't gotten the glory that a George Steinbrenner or, the, or some of the other great sports owners uh, have received. And I think, and partly he never wrote a biography and no one's ever written a biography of him, which someone should. And we're trying to do it with the show. But this is a guy who grew up on, on bread lines in Wyoming uh, and, uh, and really was, you know, he, when he moved out to LA, uh, which he chose to do because he got a scholarship at 15 to Harvard, uh, and, and was a brilliant mathematician and scientist and instead decided he wanted to come to LA because he's, his mother had taken him here when he was about 12 for a brief escape from one of his abusive stepfathers. And in that moment, he saw the sunshine and the palm trees and he said, you know, F Boston, I'm coming to LA. And he decided that's what he was going to do with his, with his life. He, and, and that's sort of the, but he was a genius scientist and a brilliant business mind, but he was also a bon vivant and a lover of life and of what LA had to offer him as this depression kid from the freezing cold, the sort of American dream of moving West and it's sunshine and palm trees and beautiful women. Uh, and he was very much a man of that moment. Uh, yeah. and, um, and kind of, to me, the best version of that uh, archetypal bootstraps idea of that, of, of the American businessmen of, that, that we've kind of been sold. And so often it's full of crap. Like so often those people are manipulative and, you know, not uh, you, you start scratching beneath the surface and you find uh, something that's far from that kind of American dream. But with Jerry Buss, you know, his warts were simply this, you know, the kind of warts that came with this sort of lover of life. He drank too much. He slept around with a lot of people, but that was, but he wore it on his sleeve. Uh, and he was, you know, you speak to people who knew him, they absolutely loved him. And he brought this passion uh, for sports and for entertainment, for Hollywood. And he saw an opportunity in the Lakers because he had tried to buy, um, he, he dreamt of buying a football team. He dreamt of buying a baseball team. He went to USC and was obsessed with the sports culture of, 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 of USC. And he would watch the Lakers. And for years, he would tell every girlfriend and every friend of his, and he had a, you know, he would date girls right and left. And he, that was just who he was in this kind of swinging playboy era. He and he would tell everyone, I'm buying, I'm going to buy the Lakers. I'm going to buy a basketball team. And no one believed him. And no one even cared because it was such a sort of last place kind of professional sport. People liked college ball. And he saw that vision. He saw that basketball was unlike football, which is a sport where you're wearing helmets and you're covering your face right. or baseball where you've got 
your favorite player comes up once every three innings. And so in basketball, they're on the floor and they're do, they're active. And not only that, but everyone's able to assert a little bit more of their personal style onto the game. Like the way that someone shoots, the way that someone drives to the rim, the way that someone dunks is more stylized, more specific and more unique than, you know, a, a swing or a run around the bases. And he saw all that and he knew that there was an opportunity there and people didn't believe in it. And uh, like any great businessman, he seized on that. And, you know, what's what's interesting about it is that because of him and because of the Lakers uh, and what transpired in the 80s uh, with then, of course, the sort of, you know, Cinderella story of drafting Magic Johnson and then the Celtics, the rivals drafting Larry Bird, same year. But what what that allowed for us today with this kind of global NBA is a world in which the NBA is so big that every team is owned by, you know, a constellation of ownership group, corporate ownership that have a lot more money and resources, ironically, than the Lakers, which is one of the few when one of the last remaining family owned teams yeah. and still, you know, manages really as a result of the legacy of Jerry Buss uh, and all of the great players uh, that he uh, and the sort of era that he was able to sort of bring to fruition. They're still you know, winning and they're still competitive, uh, which is uh, which is really extraordinary uh, under the leadership of Jeannie, given the fact they don't have the kind of resources. Uh, they're poor relative to sports owners. Right, right. Yeah, I mean, so we got to talk about Magic Johnson because from a business perspective, it, it A, is a brilliant business decision to, to draft him, to understand that he was a, a generational talent on and off the court. Yeah. And also, you know, we see clearly in the first season and and as we get into the second season, this very lucrative business partnership mm. that, that that happens and you also start to see it feels like and and we have seen this really take root of late the businessman that magic yes. becomes even at at a at a very young age. Tell me about that. Well, I think it's fascinating because you know, magic it wasn't in a foregone conclusion that he would be the number one pick. We tell that right. story in the first season. Uh, and But Jerry Buss very much believed in him. Uh, and, not, and because he knew he was a generational talent or sensed it, but the talent that he saw that maybe trumped the basketball talent was the excitement of this guy, the showmanship of Magic, both on the floor and his charisma off the floor. And Buss knew that what he wanted in that team was that kind of excitement. And so uh, Magic was just the perfect fit for the Lakers. You know, there was a world in which, you know, uh, Larry Bird might have entered that draft the same year that Magic did for various reasons, which the story does come up in the second season, but he was kind of drafted by a loophole a year before he came into the league and perfectly wound up in Boston with that sort of work, workman-like style and that kind of working class city. And Magic, who comes from an equally working class background in Lansing, he fit Hollywood because of that charisma. He fit the, yeah. the, the style and the excitement and the fun. It's hard to imagine what Larry Bird would have been like on the Lakers with, you know, that taciturn, gritted out style. It's equally effective, but it's not the same and it doesn't pop on camera like Magic. And so, you know, I think it was, you know, and we tell this story and try to dig into it, um, but, you know, it's certainly not... Uh, a foregone conclusion that he was going to, become, going to become 
the celebrity that he did or even the businessman that he did. Right. Uh, right. And a lot of that is due to his relationship with Dr. Buss. But a big part of it was his own, uh, you know, he he absorbed like a sponge the business savvy of the people around him. And part of what happens in our second season, and the story we're able to tell, is this transitional moment where having won a championship his first year and then become a star and become a national celebrity that built off of his, you know, he had some fame in college from the college game, but he really sort of popped onto the scene. But he saw an opportunity there for himself uh, and a power base for himself, both in the game and ultimately beyond the game, that was really unheard of at the time. And it starts with, you know, the deal that Dr. Buss made with Magic uh, for 25 years, a 25-year, right. $25 million deal, which was, you know, insane and unheard of on the one hand, and everyone excoriated both of them uh, for what seemed like this extraordinary profligate, you know, waste of money. In fact, Jerry, you know, had a brilliant idea up his sleeve, which was what he, which was that he invested about 500 grand uh, in a very high interest rate uh, account, which because the interest rates in those days were extreme, and he knew that that was it. He didn't. He paid Magic with the interest for 25 years. He it was the best bargain in basketball. He also saw that free agency was coming. Yes. And that in a couple of years, that was going to be a pittance. And, you know, in a day, this day and age when someone gets paid $40 million a year, right? And, of course, Magic then saw that. And the moment he realized that, Buss said, okay, we'll renegotiate. And then, But did more than that. He kind of opened the books to him. And he taught yeah. him a bit, a bit about the business. And Magic credits him with sort of bringing him in and teaching him how to be not only a basketball player, because that was nothing that Buss could teach him about that, but how to be a businessman. Right. And... and, and yeah, go ahead. Well, I was just going to say one of the fun stories just to give a sort of that we tell in this season is the way that that kind of backfires because there is a moment where Magic starts to clash with his coach. And for the first time really ever in professional sports, he realized because of the contract that Buss had given him, his power. And he realized yeah. that he was bigger than the coach and he was bigger than the organization and not in a petulant way, although he got kind of, uh, you know, very much sort of uh, lambasted by fans and press at the time. Uh, but he realized, no, you know what? I have control and agency over my own, my team right now. I'm a businessman. I'm the business. I'm a celebrity athlete. And that's something that hadn't happened before. And without him, you don't have Jordan. Without him, you don't have LeBron. Right. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. No, and I and I'm I'm so glad you brought that up because I I do think that as we start to assess, you know, even in the past five years, this notion of the the empowered athlete, the athlete empire, all of these things that are building up, you know, magic is very much on the front end of that, you know, oh, and yeah. and manifests itself most recently. He's in, you know, he owns, I, I think it's like five and a half percent of the Washington Commanders. He's part yep. of the <laughs> the largest you know, team sale in the history of U.S. sports. 
as a significant owner. You, you bring up some really interesting things in, in, in that description too, one of which is this management challenge, ultimately mm -hmm. that management and ownership challenge that Dr. Buss has with his coaches. And, mm -hmm. and, and I'm so excited in, in season two to see some of that unpack because we meet Pat Riley, obviously in season one, and in season two, presumably he, he really right. comes right. into his own, but it, it's a fascinating sort of business strategy and, and almost case study. It feels well, it's really, I mean, it's really, you know, it's, uh, he was, Bus was a visionary and he was a fly by the seat of his pants kind of owner. Uh, and the story of the ownership, I mean, of the coaching, the story of the coaching struggles and uh, in this early era of the Lakers is really kind of, you know, unprecedented and, and hilarious to watch uh, and hilarious to read about, in fact. And we really, you know, uh, you know, in the first season that Bus owned it and our first season as a show, Jerry West was the coach of the Lakers yeah. and he had been the great Jerry West, the logo of the league, and he hated coaching and, you know, self-confessed, was miserable because it was, it's hard for one of the great athletes to watch, you know, his own, you know, watch his own sport be played. He's only five, six years out of the game himself by guys who couldn't hold a candle to him. And you can't play chess that way. You have to sit on the sidelines. You can't move around your players. You can't get out and do it. And he hated that. So he quit uh, and kind of left the team in the lurch, uh, although he stayed on in management and eventually found his second act as one of the great general managers of all time. But they brought in Jack McKinney, who was this brilliant coach and a brilliant tactician who invented what it ultimately really was the run and gun showtime offense only to 12 games into the season, fall off his bike, crack his skull open, and wind up in a coma. Uh, and ultimately, his replacement was Paul Westhead, who was the year before teaching Shakespeare uh, at LaSalle and had been McKinney's sort of, you know, second-in-command assistant towel boy on his college team and was brought in by McKinney because he needed a guy to help out. In those days, assistant coaches weren't a squad like they right. are today. It was like one guy who helped you. So when Westhead got elevated to the job in the middle of the season in a temporary capacity while they were hoping McKinney would return, in comes Pat Riley as he, who was, had only retired a few years before, was a washed up player. He had been the sort of punching bag in the practice dummy uh, as it were for Jerry West on his championship team. They had, they were pals. He had been, he was never a, you know, a great player in the NBA. He'd been a great player in college, but he was sort of a great bench effort guy in the NBA. And for Jerry West, he was the guy who gave him a hard time in practice. And so they had a relationship and the Laker, and he had a relationship with Chick Hearn. So he became Chick Hearn's color commentator. So then, and he, and he was looked like a washed up kind of hippie burnout, which was a whole thing when we were getting to Adrian Brody to sign on to play Pat Riley. It was a conversation where he said, great, I can't wait. I'm going to slip back my hair. I'm going to wear the Armani suits. And it was like, well, wait a minute. Oh, wait a minute. Not quite yet. Not, Here's not Pat so fast. Actually, oh right? my God. <laughs> so Pat comes in, he's got a porn stash and long yeah. hair and he's, you know, a beach bum wandering in, in, you know, Santa Monica and playing volleyball all day. And, uh, and that's the truth of it. And Adrian was like, all right, I'll be patient. I hate the mustache, but I'll be patient. And so finally this season, we get to see him come to full flower. And it happens 
again in the most unlikely way because that first season, Westhead brings him off of Chick Hearn's color sidekick bench to be his assistant coach because they shared an office. They became pals and he needed his help. He was a guy who really knew the NBA. So together they win a championship and it feels like a magical year. But doing it again is a million times harder than doing it the first time. That really is what the second season is about. You know, they won their first year. But to become a dynasty, to become anything more than just a flash in the pan, everyone, you've got a target on your back. And now you've got to, you, you've got to work 10 times harder. Uh, and, and you've got to work against yourself and against every ego that gets stoked by that first victory. And that goes for the players whose egos get, you know, become an issue in, in their second season and their second kind of campaign for a championship and for the coaches because Westhead knows at that point that he was never the first choice, right? And and so who who is he as a coach himself without Jack McKinney's offense? And he starts to institute his own system. Riley, meanwhile, is trying to support his friend, but he's also a guy who had been a player and he gets along with the players and he understands the personalities in an intuitive way that we, of course, have seen with Pat Riley over the course of his career. So this really, for Pat Riley, this season is his sort of origin story where he, you know, it is the moment where Bruce Wayne puts on the cape and cowl and finally becomes, you know, the man he's destined to be, but only after an, a massive kind of catastrophic clash uh, with with ownership, with management, uh, and, um, and with players. Uh, and so, uh, yeah, and the way it transpires, I don't want to give it away, you know, is one of my favorite parts of the season. There's a press conference in the middle uh, where... Um, uh, where, which is, we really just ripped it from the, uh, uh, from the transcripts and, yeah. and, our, and we just, it was really one of those kind of scenes where it's a gift from God and it's just right. do no harm, you know, and try our best so that when you get to this moment where Jerry Buss steps up to say, who's going to replace Paul Westhead, who's going to be the next coach, the ultimately the man who becomes the coach of the Showtime Lakers, we know how he feels and why why he's absolutely at sea and has no idea who he's going to choose. And Riley has no idea he's going to become coach. It's really like uh, one of the sort of the most absurd moments in sports history. And uh, I think all and the actors happened. really just nail it. Yeah. It, and it happened. Yeah. And I mean, literally, I mean, when people look at the transcript, it's, um, you know, the best stuff in there is just straight. It's just, a, yeah. you just lifted it. It's amazing. So tell me about the the reaction to the first season. I mean, you clearly hit hit nerves, good and bad, you know, as you put this out uh, into the world. How did that reaction, how did the sort of doing of the first season dictate how you approached season two and the story you decided to tell? Well, you know, we... We really the the first season is incredibly heavily researched, and um, uh, and one thing we didn't do is really reveal all of our own research uh, to the press. And and one thing that happened, obviously, you know, it's a story about real people. A lot of those real people are alive, and, and uh, so they're going to have their own reactions. And and we've had you know we've had a lot of positive reactions, and then obviously some people who admitted that they never watched the show have reacted very negatively. But, you know, that's understandable. I don't know how I would react if it was my life. I know that yeah. we told a heavily researched story uh, that we stand by. And uh, this season, really, you know, we did the same. But we 
it, you know, we felt that, uh, you know, to be honest, you know, a little frustrated when the press didn't do their own digging last year uh, when some people said this never happened. And it's like, wait a minute, we got that from your memoir. You know, right. uh, I won't name names. Uh, but uh, but but that resulted this year in thinking, you know what, there's so much information out there. Uh, let's let's send out a little guide, uh, which we put together uh, uh, of um, of just not even exhaustive, but just the, for the stuff that feels the, like really like this could not possibly have happened. Uh, we it did, you know, in all those cases, it did. You know, we obviously it's a drama. It's not a documentary. So we're we're compressing time. We're doing things like that um, as everything does. But. Uh, for those crazy things, uh, we wanted to send out this guide that said, hey, here's our here's our receipts. Check it out. Not in a defensive way, but in a kind of excited way, because honestly, you heard me going to get passionate about that that press conference. One of the fun things about telling this story is that it is a true story. And of course, we're telling it in a uh, in a dramatized way and we're and we're having actors play it and we're writing scenes that, you know, happen behind closed doors and bringing it to life. But the whole reason to tell it is because of the extraordinary things these people accomplished and the extraordinary odds they faced and the fact that it really went down like this. And yeah. so, uh, and, and so um, that we, we, we really, the difference this year is how we're sort of approaching uh, kind of opening the kimono and saying, here, look, here's where, here's, here's the true story. And obviously you'll be able to see places that we, uh, nipped and tucked and, you know, did our work uh, as dramatists. But um, I think, you know, whatever that does for the actual people who who lived through it, they're going to have their own reactions. But for us, at least, it gives us a voice to be able to say, hey, look at all this fun, true stuff that uh, that, that is the backbone of the show. Yeah. So so in this massive sea of content that we're all swimming in, you know, all the time, uh, why do you think this hit the the way it did? Like, what was it? I mean, clearly you saw something, and I've heard you and Jim, your your co creator, talk a lot about sort of the shared passion you had for it. Even you know Jeff Brown's sort of skepticism right. initially about like, <laughs> yeah, I've seen this. You know, I've seen you Hollywood guys before trying you know make something that 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 I've written. Um, but clearly it it had it it hit in, in a certain way. What, why, and, and what do you think really differentiates it from, from the other stuff that's out there? I, you know, for me, I can only speak for me because I don't, who knows, you know, I think divining why a thing hits and doesn't hit yeah, is, sure. you know, if anyone knew that, then, uh, <laughs> Everything then would this be business would be very different, yeah. right? Everything would be right. hit. But for me personally, I think, you know, I think I can say that I know that everyone involved uh, is really passionate about it, not just because we love basketball, we love the story, uh, different people have different points of entry. Um, for me, it's, I love origin stories and I love American stories. I love stories that kind of, you know, and I, you know, for me, it like speaks to me in a personal way. And I think it speaks to people in a personal way. When you see that very American kind of story of an underdog, sort of situation. And we now know these people become legends. They become icons. But seeing that origin story of how they actually were by no means destined to become icons. And if anything, the odds were dead set against them in every way at every level. Like the, not only from the 
you know, from a standpoint of like, are these basketball players going to be successful as basketball players? Is the sport itself going to survive? Can Jerry Buss, this guy who's spinning plates and flying by the seat of his pants and, you know, some combination of P.T. Barnum and, you know, and Louis B. Mayer, can he pull together this, you know, this thing to be anything more than a just a catastrophic failure? None of those things were foregone conclusions. And to me, as someone who, you know, like, you know, I'm a writer, but I know, but everyone has a dream. You know, everyone comes, everyone in America is encouraged. That's the, 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 what we're taught, right? Is that that sort of core American thing is this idea of pursuing that which makes you passionate, which gets you up in the morning. And, and not everyone does it at work. Some people do it at home. And by the way, I think right now there's a lot of cynicism about it because a lot of the systems that supported that and that felt like there was opportunity for the last century in America have, have, have not been delivering. And then there's a generation of people who feel like that's not the case anymore. To me, this show speaks to that moment of, of hope and that belief that like, even for a guy who comes out of the depression as Bus did, uh, where he saw, you know, an economy that was far worse than the economy today in a world and lived through, you know, a world that faced struggles every bit as challenging as the ones we had. There was something about his almost absurd cockeyed optimism uh, that was able to see through that vision and do it in a way that is one of the inspiring, great, beautiful stories of business uh, success and ambition in America, as opposed to so many, which have a glimmer of that. And then you look at like, you know, the giant trash heap in the middle of the ocean and climate change and things that make you feel like, well, there's so much awful fallout uh, of that kind of cockeyed optimism. But in this case, I think you have a story where the NBA is going strong. You know, I mean, obviously there's pluses and minuses to everything, but I think it really is a beautiful sort of rede redemptive and inspirational kind of story. And the way that we seek to tell it is in a human way, where we're not just kind of showing the Wikipedia page of what happened, but we're trying to get into the, the, the minds and the emotional life of uh, these people. And that's something we haven't really seen much of, oddly. Like we see athletes and we think we know them and we know what their brand is, but there hasn't really been a show, which was, you know, Jim and I initially kind of like, the thing that got me excited was it, I would suddenly realize no one had actually done this. There had never been a television show about an actual team. And yeah. it's a dynasty story. It's a workplace drama. You know, it's a, it's a family drama, you know, and I think we're able to bring all of those flavors uh, into it. And it's one that deals with a lot of the great sort of themes of, of our, uh, of, of America, you know, and, and, you know, with Jim, with Rodney Barnes, uh, you know, we're, we're able to really dig into a lot of that stuff in a way that hopefully preserves the fun and games, which I think is the thing that maybe gets people in the door and then has stuff that makes you cry. And a lot, one of my favorite, you know, responses that I get over and over is, you know, it'll be from some guy who's like, my wife doesn't even like sports or, you know, uh, or, you know, my kids hate basketball and they love the show. Uh, yeah. And it gives them a window into it, and uh, in you know, in the same way that any kind of great you know television drama can hopefully bring you into a world. That's you know, that's our aspiration. Max Bornstein is the co-creator, showrunner, writer, 
executive producer of Winning Time Season 2. It's out now. Thank you so much. Really good to spend some time with you. Really good, Jason. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. Thanks so much for listening to this special edition of Bloomberg Business of Sports. Check out Season 2 of Winning Time on HBO. It's now streaming. And for more of our work exploring the intersection of business, sports, and culture, check out Bloomberg.com slash originals. You'll find shows like our Next in Sports docuseries, profiles of athletes and team owners, and much, much more. I'm Jason Kelly. Talk to you soon. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.